leading by example is contagious. And so there's a lot of pride of ownership within our communities. And, you know, we, we have a lot of different strategies that we use to enhance that, whether it's, you know, sometimes people think this is silly, but recognizing residents for their home sites and how beautiful they look, how beautiful their home looks. People like that. Okay. So really let's come down to that relationship that you have within the community and the pride that exists of being a homeowner. Hi, this is Matt Sleppin and welcome to Leading Voices in Real Estate. Today's episode is a conversation with John McLaren, the President and Chief Operating Officer of Sun Communities, a REIT and the largest owner-operator of manufactured housing communities. My conversation with John took place on May 18th. This is the first Leading Voices interview focused on the manufactured housing business. We've talked all around the subject on Leading Voices with interviews with leaders of home builders and apartment owners and the places in between. And we've had a lot of focus on affordable housing and housing affordability, for which manufactured housing could be a more important part of the discussion and the toolkit. John and I explore the different facets of the manufactured housing business in general, as well as a deep dive into Sun Communities business. As our listeners are well aware, To be a landlord in a rising cost economy is often to be in the hot seat within popular culture for rental increases. A friend of mine, Daniel Weisfield from Three Pillars Communities, wrote a letter to the editor of the Washington Post, which had published an article critical of rent increases in mobile home parks. Daniel wrote a long letter, the conclusion of which, similar to the points of today's interview, is that, quote, Manufactured housing communities are a powerful tool to create more social opportunity across the economic spectrum and to help lower-income Americans build wealth through rent savings and home ownership. I invite you to look at the full text of Daniel's letter, which we will link to in our show notes. Before we hit record on our conversation, John was telling me that he kind of fell into the real estate business and that, quote, nobody really enters the mobile home park business on purpose. He went on to say that his career has been a great blessing in which he's achieved meaningful success and also, you'll hear it from him throughout our conversation, he has clearly found meaning and purpose. It's funny, I so often say the same thing. I fell into the real estate business early on and then fell into recruiting midway through my career. At least 25 years ago when I started in recruiting, I would have also said that Nobody really enters the recruiting business on purpose. You kind of fall into it, which I did. So I really related to the conversation with John since I too have found deep meaning in a business to which is not always ascribed great status that for me has become a meaningful calling. Thank you, John, for allowing me these parallels. Also, thank you as always to ZRG Partners for sponsoring the podcast. ZRG is one of the fastest growing talent advisory firms across the globe. And with its recent acquisition of my company, TerraSearch Partners, we are together building a premier recruiting practice in the real estate industry. I'm thrilled with the merger and partnership and the opportunity to leverage the ZRG platform to grow our business in real estate. I hope that you enjoy today's conversation with John and our deep dive into the manufactured housing niche. If you enjoy today's episode, please share it with a friend and go to the show notes where we link this episode to other related conversations within the Leading Voices archive. If you have comments, questions, or guest suggestions, please email me at mslepin at zrgpartners.com. I hope that you enjoy the show. 
John McLaren, I welcome you to Leading Voices in Real Estate. You're the first person on the show from the manufactured housing business, which we're going to dive deep into both generally about the business, specifically about your company, and then we're going to talk about your background. But that follows the arc of real estate. We talk a lot about residential. We talk a lot about affordable housing, which really is what manufactured is. So kind of lots of themes here and lots of strings to pull on. So I'm really excited about the conversation. Me too. And my first question is, is always is kind of a self-introduction. So tell the audience who you are, where you are, what your company is briefly, and then we're going to dive into all the things we just talked about. Sure. Again, Matt, it's great to be with you here uh, this afternoon. My name is John McLaren. I'm the uh, President and Chief Operating Officer of Sun Communities. We are a real estate investment trust. We have been in a company since 1975, went publicly traded beginning in 1993. And, and uh, the way I describe the company is that we, um, we really have three main business lines, which the first and the biggest is our manufactured housing uh, community portfolio, which represents about 50%. And then we have a pretty good sized recreational vehicle portfolio within that. And even within the RV side, we have a hybrid group, which is sort of the combination of manufactured housing and RV. And then more recently, some additions of uh, Safe Harbor Marinas, which is our marina portfolio, which is throughout the uh, coast to coast in the United States, as well as Puerto Rico. And then our most recent venture was um, earlier this year, closing on a portfolio of 42 properties in uh, the United Kingdom called Park Holidays. So it's been a really great you know, four decades for the company um, as we've grown thoughtfully and methodically. I've been with Sun for about just almost 20 years, have had a variety of roles. First joined the company as a regional vice president, which meant that I had a small portfolio of properties that I was responsible for leading, and then grew into another position as the leader of our retailer side of what we do, which is the side of our business that sells homes within our communities, leases homes with communities, did that for a bit. And then became chief operating officer in 2008 and then president of the company in 2014. So for me, as you might imagine, Matt, it's been a very fun, interesting, fulfilling career, you know, even before Sun, but most, most importantly, within Sun over the last 20 years. It's been a lot of fun. Right. It sounds great. And talk just a little bit about Sun's size and scale and role in the industry, maybe as compared to competitors of scale. And then we'll dive into talking about what manufactured housing really means in the real estate world. Sure. So I think that there's really within our asset classes that we are in, there's really only one comparable that has all three of the business lines that we have that's of scale. And it's another publicly traded company that's out of Chicago. But our current portfolio as it stands in the beginning of May is we have about 646 properties across the United States, Canada, and the United Kingdom. I think the enterprise value of our company is approximately $30 billion. Okay. And that other company in Chicago is Zell's company, isn't it? That's correct. And just for comparison, what's their size if we're comparing size here? (laughs) Well, they're a little smaller. Okay. (laughs) You know, we look to them as they are exceptional operators um, in the asset class as Mm -hmm. well. You know, and some of the things that we've done, for example, the marina business, they actually were the first ones to get into that side of the business when you look at sort of the comparison between us and them. So I think the way I describe the relationship is we sort of both lead and follow at different points in time in terms of strategies. Right. And then if you, and what's the overall size of the manufactured housing 
world and how much of the manufactured housing stock in the country is in parks, if that's the right word, and how much are independent on someone's yard? Good question. So I think as of late, I think the last statistics I saw is about 22 million Americans live in manufactured homes across the country, mm-hmm. of which about 4.3 million of them live in approximately, it's a little bit more than 40,000 communities throughout the United States. And as you might imagine, you know, a community could be defined as you know, a very small one that maybe only has 20 home sites associated with it to very large ones, which may have 2,500 sites associated with a given community. Mm-hmm. So the majority of people live in manufactured housing on private property. Mm-hmm. And so we represent probably a fifth, a little bit more than a fifth of uh, the number of people living in manufactured homes throughout America. Mm-hmm. And, and then of that fifth, and I think mm-hmm. of consolidation in the business, I think of mom and pops, I think of institutional in the apartment business, we used to call it professionally managed apartments was the 20 years ago, the word they started to use that kind of defined the difference. But that's a pretty small percentage, therefore, of that of the built population. Yeah, that's correct. I mean, we represent, you know, 283 of those 43,000 communities that exist across America. And so the vast majority of them are going to be you know, family mom and pop operations that get passed down from generation to generation. Mm-hmm. And maybe last part of this question, and we'll dive on other stuff, but therefore the number of these communities of scale that can trade to institutional owners is a pretty thin business, although lots of people are talking about it. Sure. I mean, there's, there's clearly been a lot of activity in our asset class. I, I can tell you over the course of my career here with Sun, you know, we really became active again in, in acquiring operating communities back in 2010. Mm-hmm. You know, I can tell you that between then and now, the prices and the cap rates associated with manufactured housing communities is, is cap rates have significantly compressed. There's much more competition. There's a lot more private equity that's in the asset class um, trying to aggregate communities. Our growth has been through, we sort of joke about it because we've done some bigger portfolio acquisitions between 2010 and now, mm-hmm. um, there's really not, you know, a tremendous amount of portfolios that exist today that would fit what we would like to have within mm-hmm. Sun's portfolio. So much, much of the aggregation that we've done over this time has been onesies and twosies, we call them, picked up along the way. And, and sort of our, our thought process is to grow thoughtfully and methodically you know, along the way and just keep building upon a really solid foundation that we've built. Mm-hmm. And therefore, some of your growth is to take the operating platform you've built in this business to bring it into the RV business or vacation-ish business because it's hard to get scale within your specific sector. Yeah, that's absolutely correct. I mean, we would define manufactured housing as attainable housing is what we call it. Mm-hmm. And then what we define our RV portfolio as being as affordable vacationing, okay? Because the, the reality is, is that most guests that come to our RV resorts are usually traveling, traveling from within a 90-mile radius to the property, so it's fairly close to home. Mm-hmm. The majority of our guests in our RV resorts are also what we call annuals, which are people that would rent the site for the entire year or for the entire season and just come and go as they please. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it is absolutely a... Um, you know, we love the asset class because it's it's an affordable option for vacationing. 
versus some other forms of vacations people might take. Right. We'll come back to that. And, and then as we think about, we're going to talk about attainability of the housing and affordability of it. Are, are there, therefore, because this is an affordable housing, attainable housing solution, are there many communities being built? And I think the answer is no, and I'm curious why that's the case. The answer to your question is yes. There are very few communities being built today on the manufactured housing side. You know, a lot of it has to do with NIMBYism, you know, mm-hmm. not in my backyard, right. um, which is not uncommon to any development that you might do. I am actually... Uh, one of the ways that I represent the company is I'm typically the person who's at those planning commission meetings, those city council meetings, you know, talking about sun, talking about our product and, and sharing what we've done over the last four decades. And so, you know, we have built 10 communities over the last five years. As you might imagine, that process has been challenging. It can take two years to get through the entitlement process. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that we're fortunate that since we have built 10 properties over this period of time, it is marginally easier to have the conversations with the planning commissions simply because I'm no longer showing, you know, beautiful renderings of what we're going to build, but I'm actually able to show photographs of what we've built. Okay. And the kind of thought um, and, and, and that goes into our communities, the stewardship that any developer can bring to a community. And so, I think that word leads us a little bit. And uh, so when I say it's marginally easier, this is another thing I kind of tongue in cheek on is that, you know, if it would take 24 months before to get through entitlements, maybe it takes 23 months now. <laughs> That's not as big a differential in the cost structure as you want it to be. But the NIMBY thing, we had we had the head of the YIMBY movement talk on our podcast a couple months ago, or one of the leaders of the YIMBY movement, yes, in my backyard, uh, we didn't get to manufactured housing because it was really, the, her theme is very urban and infill. But, you know, attainable housing is the issue. Yeah, and but you do, you know, with all these different municipalities that I've interacted with over the years, you know, it's a pretty wide range of how much planning has taken place in terms of you can go to one city and they have very well defined what their affordable housing goals are. Mm-hmm looked out, you know, five and 10 years in terms of what their needs are. And then you can go to another municipality that really is, it's almost like we're coming in to like share that with them. Okay. They, it's like, you know, what's taking place, but you know, either whether they don't have the bandwidth or, or things like that, that haven't allowed them to kind of really plan that out in the future. It's, it's a very wide range. Right. Right. Absolutely true. And you used another interesting word, one of my favorite words, which is stewardship. And I think when you're an institution and a public company, as a landlord, you have the opportunity and obligation to be a steward, which really changes the name of the game from, in particular in your industry, which doesn't have much of that. Yeah. Well, that is, stewardship is a word that is very much in Sun's DNA. You know, everything that we do uh, within our business is looked at from a very long-term perspective, Matt. Mm-hmm. And whether it's the con- continual reinvestment that takes place back in our communities, whether it's the relationships that we have with our the manufacturers whom we buy homes from, and innovating that product to become, you know, more aesthetically pleasing, more efficient environmentally, and things like that. You know, I think those are the things that you know we try to influence along the way. Okay, so that we're continuing to make progress in those regards, and then. You know, more important than anything is we're part of the local community then. 
Okay, so it's important for us to listen to the needs that that local community has. And so we've, we've provided all sorts of different benefits, whether it's to build a city park or contribute to things that the, you know, a recreation center that the city wants and things like that as part of the development. Because frankly, it, it is part of stewardship. And, and frankly, when you look at it from a, you know, just strictly the business side and wanting to be able to fill your newly built sites within your community, those sorts of things are going to aid into that, you know, investment return that we make as well. Of course. So let's make the product real because I don't understand the product, either the horizontal product, the build, the homes, if, if you will, and then the vertical product of the infrastructure. But talk about what these homes are in, in your communities or in this overall industry of the 22 million people. Do they largely own their own homes or do yeah. they lease them? How does that work? Yeah, the, the vast majority of, of folks that live in manufactured homes own their own homes. Within our communities specifically, we do have a, you know, a decent sized home rental program within our communities, but it represents approximately 7.5% of our overall occupancy. So it's not a tremendously huge portion. Uh-huh. Most of the people own their homes within our communities. And, and of the homes that are on your communities and that therefore people own, what's mm-hmm. the useful life of one of these buildings, say, as compared to a stick-built building? Any sense yeah, of that? It, Is this a depreciating asset or appreciating asset? Well, we've seen a good amount of appreciation of homes within our communities. And again, I think that ties back to pretty much anything you might own, okay? Which is whether it's a home, you know, single family home, a manufactured home, a car, whatever it might be, how that home is cared for makes a difference in terms of of the life of the home. And so what I can tell you is that we have about a 1% turnover rate within our portfolio of homes that leave a community. So although I've not lived that long, Matt, Okay, that would basically tell you that the average home would stay in one of our communities for 100 years. And I can also tell you that the average resident lives in one of our communities for about 14 years. And so when they when they move, they're not moving the home. They're selling the home to somebody else who's buying it. And in many cases, they've seen price appreciation in their home when they do sell it. But maybe like a car, the price depreciation in the second half of its useful life, I did that. This doesn't suggest these properties have a 100-year useful life. They still may just have a 50-year useful life in terms of a manufactured home. I want to use the word trailer. So I have at one end of the spectrum, we have the nice word manufactured home. At the other, it's a trailer. And so you don't upgrade it in the same way necessarily. Your community probably, by the quality of your work, extends everyone's expectation and therefore what they'll invest, I'm guessing. No, you're right. And I mean, just, it's, it's sort of like you've heard the expression leading by example. Okay. Mm-hmm. I mean, one of the things that I always tell our team operationally is let's try not to forget that the vast majority of our communities are home sites. Okay. So the bottom line is this, if your home sites look great, if the homes are well cared for, our community looks great. I mean, we've all been in communities of all sorts of different asset classes where the common area is the only area of the community that looks nice. And, you know, so it's, you have to have all of it. And so what happens is that sort of leading by example is contagious. And so there's a lot of pride of ownership within our communities. And, you know, we, we have a lot of different strategies that we use to enhance that, whether it's, you know, sometimes people think this is silly, but recognizing residents for 
their home sites and how beautiful they look, how beautiful their home looks. People like that. Okay. So really just come down to that relationship that you have within the community and the pride that exists of being a homeowner. And so, and that's why I think that, you know, we have that longevity. I will also add that we also do have rules to live in our communities as well. Okay. And so they, every year we go out and we look at every home in the portfolio we provide the residents, you know, a little list of things that they might want to consider to, you know, whether the home needs to be painted or, or whatever it might be, little updates that need to happen is just a normal course of being a homeowner, right? And uh, to do that, what we also have to do is we have to provide support because the average, um, you know, family income in one of our communities is about $45,000 a year. And in some cases might not have the money to paint a house. Okay. And so as part of our, what we call our pride of ownership campaign, we may contribute paint. We may contribute, you know, a piece to it and an overall campaign to the community because really it's just, it's part of that long-term reinvestment that we make in it. And it makes, you know, when they say rising tides raises all ships, it's a good thing okay, right. for the community. And do you provide services and maintenance services to do this at a cost that may be better for the, than for them, for your one of your residents, than going to a private contractor? Yes, we will provide access, although we can't direct them to any specific contractor. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll pri- provide access to our contractors should they choose to get pricing that is going to fall in line with our pricing power that we have within the portfolio overall. So can you get them a refrigerator at a contractor price that works for them that they can't get if they go to a contractor and have to get the refrigerator? We can't. Yeah. Yeah. We had, again, similar conversation on single family rental with Progress Residential on the podcast. And we were talking about the pricing power of of the SFR companies to do a renovation versus Mm -hmm. Matt to go to the guy with the truck to do the renovation they're going to get half the price, right? At, at twice the speed because of repeat business and everything else. Absolutely. I mean, this is this is about taking care of all stakeholders, okay? Everybody benefits from relationships like that. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about, that. and here's some statistics I read online from the Manufactured Housing Institute, I think. Average cost of a manufactured home last year was $106,000, $106,590 versus a single family home of three fifty one. dollars Right. Now, some of that is not just because it's manufactured. Some of it is the 50-year lifespan versus 100-year lifespan, I'm guessing. But that's a third the price. And then the average rental was 91 cents per square foot versus a buck 90 per square foot between uh, manufactured housing and and apartment living. So kind of talk about those differentials. And does that differential also include the cost of ownership in that rental part. I think what you just illustrated there, Matt, was the tremendous value proposition that, that our form of housing brings. Okay. Mm-hmm. You, know, you talk about the differential in the home price itself, as well as on the rental side. But even on top of that, which is not in those statistics that you read, is there's a lower barrier to entry to get into home ownership in a manufactured housing community, just by the simple fact that you are paying you know, $106,000 for your home versus $350,000 for your home. And so when you live in a community that's been cared for for a long time, it becomes a very easy value proposition. I've been in operations for many, many years. Okay. And in the beginning, when we really started growing as a company, 
we're very aware of most consumers have a preconceived notion um, about the product. And then and the really, the important thing was to get them to our properties. Okay. Cause a picture says a thousand words. Okay. Mm-hmm. And when they see the type of product and what it is by comparison to different asset classes or different costs associated with different asset classes, that's when you can really illustrate what the value is to live in one of our communities or in a manufactured home community as a whole. Right. And then when you say it's a lower barrier to entry for obtaining the home because it's a third of the cost, but can you finance it with Fannie Freddie at single family rates of mortgages or is it chattel financing at a higher interest rate? It is chattel financing at a higher rate. The, the lower barrier to entry is typical. Typical terms for a new manufactured home purchase and financing would be, you know, in the 10% down range um, for down payment. Typical term would be maybe 20 years um, for that loan. And then, but the rates are going to be, you know, they're going to vary. They're going to vary anywhere between 7 and 9%. Wow. So yeah. overall still affordable because of the price differential, but that financing is far inferior financing from a rate standpoint and a term standpoint. Yeah, Forget but the it's down not, payment part. It's, it's also not as elastic as like rates are moving today and mm-hmm. you would not see the manufactured housing rates move in the same fashion as a single family 30 year mortgages today. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then talk about your side of this in manufacturing some of these homes and how you've seen that change. And also there's a whole lot of conversation within the overall real estate business of building, uh, creating componentized housing mm-hmm. of different sorts. We use the word manufactured in one way or the other, but build in a factory. Factory built yep. units is now popular. So there may be less daylight between what you're doing and the rest of the industry is doing anyhow. Yeah, that's true. Now, we, we Sun has never been in the manufacturing side of the business. Okay. It's not, it's not one of our business lines, but- we are, I believe we're either, we are or close to the largest factory built home purchaser in the country and have been for a number of years. And so with that, Matt, you know, we've had a significant dialogue with the manufacturers that we work with in terms of what I was mentioning earlier with home innovation, I will call it. And it really started, you know, a number of years ago when we started with the interiors of the homes. Okay, and in a different flow, more open floor plans. Typically, you know, having a larger home that's going to come with four bedrooms, you know, and things like that for families. And as of late, over the last several years, we've really focused our attention on the exteriors of homes and sort of that street appeal, especially as we've earnestly been building more ground up greenfield developments in manufacturing home communities. We wanted to build a different neighborhood, okay, built before in our industry. You're right, though, that. You know, certainly um, the single family side or build to rent, okay, you're seeing more of that um, componentized home building, whether it's all of it or part of the home, okay, is coming from a factory. And I think that that's, that's, you know, it's something our industry's always done. I mean, the home is 100% built in the factory. If you look at it from an ESG perspective, it's a very good thing, okay, because you're minimizing scrap. You're not building in a weather environment, it's contained, okay? And so by adding that to all different forms of building, I think it's got you know, a greater impact, positive impact on the environment. So then what's the difference? Be- so a friend of mine in Sonoma County built a vacation home with a company called Blue Homes. 
don't know mm-hmm. if you've heard of blue homes, and they, they're on hinges. So they're yeah. able to flatten the house, and this is yep. a high-end house. And one of the benefits of the high-end house is they go through a different zoning and permitting process. So he saved two years of NIMBY hell in Sonoma County putting up a house on his property, and it's gorgeous. So what's the difference between the blue home that he acquired that went up and your home? Maybe your home continues to have wheels. It could move again one day, but probably not anyhow. So I'm not sure the difference here. There's not a tremendous difference. I mean, his house is probably built to um, a different construction code. All of our houses are built to HUD code, mm-hmm. which basically makes them roadworthy, mm-hmm. okay, and the construction standards. But in terms of the materials, and certainly there could be some differences in the, in the actual finishes that your friend would want yep. in their house yep. and what would come with a high-end home. He's a yuppie uh, dude, yeah. Yeah, but you'd see, you know, for the most part, they're still factory-built homes. Okay. And so that, that line, just like you're saying, is becoming, you know, a lot blurrier uh, in terms of what people are buying today. Are the HUD standards, and we'll leave the subject in a sec, but are HUD standards required to be set up for their continued to be mobile homes? And if you were to work with HUD to get rid of that, since no one ever moves these things once they're sitting there, then some of the costs that you have around continued mobility could go into more permanent structuring. Yeah, and I think that really the HUD code, more than anything else, really serves to, when that home leaves the factory, it's been inspected. So it's met all of its requirements versus anything that you might have to do in the field um, once that home is uh, installed onto the site within the community. So it, it's that's what makes part of the process so efficient. Right. Because you're getting the permits and the inspections for the site itself. And you might have, you know, a plumbing inspector or some local inspector make sure that the home's been installed correctly. Right. The home itself, that's already taken place in the factory, so it gets its HUD stamp from there. Yeah. I'm just thinking, though, because you say one of the requirements is that it continues to be able to be movable. My friend's isn't movable. And how much do you really care that once you get it there, its continued mobility matters? That might be a part of the cost structure and making things light so you can do it, not actually a good goal. That's an important point to bring up because just like I said, you know, when you have 1% turnover a year, nothing's moving anyway. Yeah. Okay, so really, it's sort of immaterial. So a couple subjects. Talk about the dynamics of turnover, the dy- dynamics within your portfolio and other portfolio of rent increase. And you have a whole lot of pricing power because people can't move. Mm-hmm. But you're a steward, so you're not going to raise rents abusively. How do you find that balance? And then within the industry, maybe others don't find that balance in the same way that you do. So kind of talk about you got these people. They're not going nowhere. So how does that work? You're sort of touching on the long-term view again, Matt. Yep. Okay. And then the fact that we have been an organization for over four decades. And so with that view, you know, we have typically had you know, our rent increases on an annual basis have typically been between the two to 4% range. Okay. Mm-hmm. And over that same period of time, over two decades, we've not had a single quarter where we've had an NOI contract, net operating income. So we've grown every quarter. Right. And it really comes down to the way that I look at it is stewardship's important, but that's across all stakeholders, whether it's our residents, whether it's our team, whether it's our shareholders, okay, and trying to balance it all across stakeholders. And so 
that's been a formula that's worked really well for us. And I can tell you that, you know, with inflation the way it is today, mm-hmm. okay, I, we have moved a little bit farther than I think our weighted average rent increase so far for 2022 is right at 4.2%. Mm-hmm. Okay. But we're, you know, it, it's, you can reach a point at a little bit of a point in no return with that too, because there is a cost to turnover. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's kind of what you were alluding to a little bit too, which is that, you know, it doesn't take, if you had a typical we'll call it 300 site community in the portfolio and the Delta difference between a 1% and a rent increase, it only takes one or two houses moving out to completely eliminate that increase that you had across, across that given community for the rent increase. So there's sort of two sides to balancing that equation. And so we look at both. Obviously, when we consider, you know, rent increases in any given year, we look at the comparable set of properties around us. We look at what their rents are. We look at the quality of the communities themselves. We look at the occupancy of our own and those communities and try to, you know, place ourselves in a, you know, in a competitive spot. Okay. So that one, it's fair. Okay. For the residents Two, it grows the portfolio or grows the, uh, uh, the NOI of that community. And, and then it's going to you know, serve for that, those long-term goals that we have as a company. You know, I'm really proud of our history um, with that and being stewards um, within the communities because there's some predictability to it, which, you know, if you view your residents within your communities, we view them as they are the advocates for our company. They are our sales force. And that's, that is the bottom line. So let, let, I'm going to keep pushing on this because it, and this relates to you as well as your industry. And one of the things you say on your one of your investor presentations is your NOI growth over 20-year same-source sales is 5.1 versus same of multifamily REITs was 2.4, I think. Mm-hmm. And so that's, that's a hefty growth and certainly a hefty growth as compared to apartments, which have risen considerably. Is that therefore on the expense side? Because your rent increases aren't that much and you don't have much turnover. So how do, are you achieving those numbers? We're achieving those numbers again through, I'll go back to, we don't have a lot of turnover. There's a cost of turnover. So we right. never see that cost of turnover take place in our portfolio. Uh-huh. I shouldn't say never. It's, it's limited. Of course. Okay. You know, so that's a component to it. We've got a lot of different levers for growth. Okay. Which is the... You know, one is the rent increases like we talked about before. Two is occupancy gains. So how do you build a portfolio where you can continually have occupancy gains? We've been very um, you know, inquisitive over the years of purchasing parcels of land adjacent to our existing communities, developing those parcels mm-hmm. and adding them on. And as you might imagine, you know, that's a highly accretive transaction that takes place because, you know, I think our typical margin in a manufactured home community is between 65 and 70 percent. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that would mean you have a 30 to 35 percent expense ratio within that community. When you do an expansion, it might be 15 percent. Mm-hmm. Okay. That contributes to that growth as well. And, uh, you know, and then, you know, there are other contributors that are sort of outside our MH, which is like on the RV side, we convert a lot of short-term guests to long-term guests. Right. Um, right. Over the course of a year and every year that every time one of those converts, it's about a 50% increase in revenue for that site for that first year. So I, it's, it's sort of like all of those things, Matt, fall into that equation. But once again, I go back to that steady, steady growth that we've had and being able to maintain that. I think that's, uh, 
that's really an important thing to sort of reflect on when you look at what our NOI numbers have consistently been versus other industries that might go up and down, you know, along the way. Right. It makes sense. And I want to come back to more with the synergies and platform of your company in a second. I just want to stick a little bit more with the industry and the sector. And it's so interesting with the statistics that you give and the service that you talk about that we don't hear about manufactured housing parks as a place for attainable housing all the time, given the discussion in our country about the housing shortage and the time it takes and the nimbyism, which you have here too, Mm -hmm. uh, and the cost of this housing. Now, it may also not often be infill, so it may be more greenfilled where the developments are, but gosh, it should be a bigger part of the housing discussion. So kind of that's conversation A, and then conversation B is there might be a huge gap between the institutional owner's behavior and those of non-institutional owners who don't quite follow some of the same rules that you do, and that might hurt your growth from a reputational standpoint. That's a complex question, but yeah. you can unpack it. <laughs> well, I couldn't agree more with your first point, and, and I think a lot of it has to do with just, I think, I think the asset class is frankly is misunderstood. Yeah. I mean, there, there's a history behind us, okay? I think that there's a handful of us that have done things differently mm-hmm. uh, in the industry, almost to the degree that in some respects, I would almost define, you know, some of us as being a different industry right. to some degree. And just in terms of the way that we operate, there is still, you know, I think a lot of the mom and pops, you know, generally run a very good, tight, clean community, you know, but the thing that stops them from going further typically is capital or right. access to capital in the tougher times. And then you do see others that have gotten into the asset class. And I think there's, how do I say it? I guess it's just like any other asset class. There's good and there's not so good players. Okay. There are some that are trying to drive, you know, the maximum returns across all stakeholders. We want to have a balance. And so I think that that contributes to sort of the misunderstanding that takes place within the industry. And I I do like the fact that once again, although marginal, as I said earlier, when I go into the planning commissions and city council meetings, it's becoming more understood. Okay. And I think that the home product itself, particularly over the last five years has evolved to, you know, much more aesthetically pleasing and efficient housing than we had, especially 20 years ago. And so I think it's, it's definitely catching attention. Um, you know, certainly um, I do think that our, our legislators are starting to look at this more as a solution and an option for affordable and attainable housing. It's just taken a very, very long time. I mean, I've done, I've done the legislative fly-ins, okay, to Washington, things right. like that. It's, it's interesting. A friend of mine, I don't know if you remember this person, but Gail Davis is a friend of mine who used to run the Manufactured Housing Institute, and I believe. Oh, yeah. Yes. Gail's yeah. a wonderful, wonderful person. And But it was interesting because I, my recollection of her description of her job was during the period of time she had, the range of behaviors of your peer group was really wide. <laughs> And that's what we're talking about. So it's it's interesting. And but some of the behaviors at the one end of that spectrum were less than helpful for the industry. 
Yeah, I think it really it's it's sort of what's your view though? Is your view a short term view right. or is it a long term view? And that that obviously plays into the decision making that it doesn't have to just be manufactured housing. It could be any Anything. asset class. It's all the same. The same in what I do as a recruiter. So talk more about your company and the business platform and how these different components work together to create a whole that is that's so as efficient and successful as you've talked about. And then I want to talk about international as well. Yeah. Well, the first thing I would say is we have, I would give the entire credit to, you know, our success over the years to our team. You know, I'm the sort of uh, leader who believes that the team comes first. And when we have an inspired, engaged, and collaborative team um, within the company, that leads to all good things, which is the relationship with our residents and guests within the portfolio is outstanding. The relationship with each other is outstanding. Um, We learn along the way. And so when you look at like our three business lines that we have between manufactured housing, RV, and marina, there's a considerable amount. And now, the United Kingdom, there's a considerable amount of collaboration that takes place. And so it's been since 2010 when, when I really began you know, leading the charge on acquisitions, I've viewed every acquisition as sort of like a dress rehearsal for the next, Matt. Okay. And, and what are we going to learn from that and apply going forward? How can we better you know, come together as a culture? And so it's not something... That is the thing that I always looked at first. Okay. How do we, what is the quickest way for these new people that are joining the company to feel like Sun team members? Okay. Because once again, if it's the team first, that has such a positive impact on everything else you do. And so, as you might imagine, you know, we've learned a lot of things over that period of time from different strategies that prior owners have taken. And we've taken some of them and we've applied them. We've taken some of them and we've maybe put our own spin to it. And, 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 but more importantly, it's like having this repository for ideas to be able to flow up into the organization. I mean, years ago, we'd established you know, our own you know, Sun intranet, okay, which is we have a place uh, within our system that we call the fridge. Okay, mm-hmm. it's, it's kind of corny, okay, because... You know, think about when you were a kid, Matt, you're at school and you drew a picture and you gave it to your mom. Where did she put it? The fridge. Put it on the fridge. Okay. <laughs> and so this is the place where somebody who's got, has an idea can put it out there for everybody to see it in the organization. And what ends up happening is somebody takes that idea and they adapt it for themselves or they come up with something on top of that becomes a better idea. And it's like, it's just, everything sort of continually becomes refined. That's what makes things tick, okay, is, is that, that sort of creative spirit that takes place within, you know, trust me when I say we've got hard operational <laughs> guidelines, too, for the things that we do. But right. there's a white space where you can, you know, uh, take the initiative. And so that, that is the cornerstone of the company and what we do. And let me, let me push on that a little bit because I think that's the cost of entry to be a business platform is the behavior that you just talked about. So everyone at institutional scale, if they don't have that, they're in trouble. And so I'm trying to think of either technology or synergies between these different business lines and do the synergy, do you learn something in the RV business that then comes back to the manufactured homes business that makes you a better operator? Or do you learn something from how they behave in England around this that 
wow, we hadn't thought about that in the States or vice versa. Yeah, I'll give you an example. So we've, we've gone through on the RV side, what was once Sun RV Resorts is now called Sun Outdoors and went through a very, a two-year process of rebranding that side of the portfolio. And so as along with that came a very robust social media campaign, or really platform that's been built around all that. Mm-hmm. And so, and then that sort of led to, you know, the better engagement, getting better information from our customers that are at our RV resorts. So we built, you know, essentially the warehouse, the data warehouse to know better right. what our customers have to say. And so we can now apply that back over to the manufactured housing side and really start to gain information about what our customers think about us. Okay. And to apply what we do better. You know, we also, as part of Sun Outdoors, segmented the RV properties, okay. Between ones that are going to be more short-term in nature, okay. Or ones that are going to be more annual in nature. And so that led to, how do we want to look at the manufactured housing portfolio, which is how do we want to segment our all age communities versus our age restricted communities is there a branding that we want to do on the age restricted communities to, you know, which seems to make sense to us to really sort of get ahead of that. Okay. A little bit more than we have before. And so it, it you, you kind of said in the beginning, it's like to have these different business lines allows you to, you know, maybe make the investment over here into something, but then be able to bounce it back over here and lever the investment more across the portfolio. And so we do, and, and like our, our, company intranet is once again a great vehicle at the field level mm-hmm. for these ideas to bounce around because yeah, I, I will just tell you that I'm the person that says the best ideas come from the field. Okay. From the folks that are actually on the front line, you know, facing consumers every day. Mm-hmm. And, and we do a good job of listening. And I'll also say most companies don't. Okay. listening to what those folks out in the field have to say. When we do a good job of that is when we see really great results and new things come. Uh-huh. Well, I think that's the case, interestingly, as once any re- or other operating company with a sticky portfolio gets to scale, they yeah. turn from flipping from what was a transactional business to an operating business. And then how you choose to run that operating business and that platform, one of my favorite words, is, is up to you. And I think that's yeah. how companies differentiate themselves over time in those businesses. They differentiate themselves culturally is what it is. And yeah. it's, uh, yeah, as you might imagine, with as many communities we have, there's going to be a property out there that might have a challenge from time to time. Call it right. rent collection. Just, uh, just as an example. So guess who's out collecting rents with the community managers? I am. Okay. It's not for me to do their job, but it's to demonstrate. Okay. Right. And it's to show them that, there is nobody within our chain that is everybody's willing to take a piece piece of it and do do our jobs together. And and when you have sort of a culture that you know leads by example, leads from the front, you know, shoulder to shoulder, everybody, and where none of us are above anything, it has a tremendous impact on on the overall results. Yeah, and it's interesting for me. People talk about culture all the time, and it always bugs me because you have a mission statement and you have your five guiding principles, and I love them. Although I haven't read anyone where say, hey, our, one of our guiding principles is to be an asshole. I've just never read that. Right. So everyone's better than average in this. 
But where it really sorts itself out is 100% in how that translates into behaviors in the company and some of the technologies that force and enable those behaviors. Yeah. You have to walk the talk. Technology is vitally important, as you say. I mean, we, and we've shared this on a number of our earnings calls. We, we are undertaking a big ERP project um, within the company right now. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it's, it's going to be a game changer for the company because what it's going to do is it's going to make um, everybody's job. There'll be less touch points mm-hmm. transactionally than things mm-hmm. we do, which means we'll be able to spend more time engaged with each other and with our residents and our guests. And so that will raise our overall team member satisfaction, which has that effect in raising overall uh, consumer satisfaction again. So that's pretty cool. Absolutely true. A couple of other points that we've touched upon here, and I'm curious about one, is you mentioned age restricted properties versus all age properties. What's the difference in behavior within your portfolio and all the subjects we've talked about between those two types of properties? Most of it's going to be sort of the activities that might take place within the communities themselves. And the certainly the, you know, the amenity cores that are going to be associated with those communities might be a little bit different. Mm-hmm. Even within our all-age communities that we have in the portfolio, I can tell you that 25 to 30% of our residents are retirees mm-hmm. or say it differently, would be qualified to live in one of our 55-plus age-restricted communities. And so, you know, th- those are the big differences. I mean, you'd see a lot of commonality across the portfolio in terms of just operational execution, I would say, mm-hmm. um, in terms of the beautification, the upkeep and continue reinvestment into the communities. We have spent, you know, the last 10 years really uh, shifting, you know, the amenity cores a bit within the age-restricted communities and gearing things more towards more active activities. Yeah. Um, there's certainly more sports courts and trails. and. You're going to say pickleball, right? You no, know, we, we actually have one community in uh, Casa Grande, Arizona, called Palm Creek that has 32 pickleball courts. Oh, my God. That community, yeah, and it's uh, it's a it's a sight to behold. <laughs> well, and but let, let's let's stick with it on all age communities for a second as we think about attainable housing. So I have a prejudice, and it's easy to think of an age restricted community working well towards social goals around this. But I want to think of the all age communities working well towards social goals and outcomes of those communities as attainable housing for families that helps with the fabric of the community and for growing kids. Any comments on that? Yeah. Again, I will always come back to this, Matt. This comes back to the relationship that you have within the community itself. When I go out on site visits out to properties, you know, we'll finish the day up at, you know, six o'clock and then I'll go start knocking on doors. Uh Okay. And just speaking with people. And I can tell you when I first started doing it, people thought, you know, I had lobsters coming out of my ears, okay? And, and, uh, but I really wanted to know, okay, what they have to say. It was sort of like an opportunity to say, I'm willing to do it. Everybody should be willing to do this because this is really incredible intelligence to have a, how we can be better, perpetually be better at what we do. And so we actually, we ask our managers throughout the portfolio to visit three residents at their homes every single day. And now the reality is, I even have these books that are bright red on the top that sit on their desk where they journalize it because I wanted it to be bright red because I wanted to be able to find it quickly whenever I go to a property. And I know it's not a perfect world. If, if our, if our uh, community managers get out a couple days a week, you know, that's great. 
Okay. Mm-hmm. But that interaction makes a difference, you know, whether it's the things like the back to school events that we might do in our communities and, and providing, you know, pencils and paper and color paper and things like that. Okay. To kids that might need it. Summer activities that we have around our amenity cores, you know, that keep the kids busy and stuff like that. I mean, these are, these are great things that build community is the bottom line. Okay. And so when, when you see that taking place, who wouldn't want to live there? I mean, there's so much going on. And why wouldn't every community be proud of having a neighborhood like this within their local community? Because my neighborhood, I live in a neighborhood, they don't do anything like that. Right. Okay. You know, but here's a place where there's actual programming around a family community. You know, once again, our residents are a sales force. We need them to be advocates for what we do to help that make that a successful process. Yeah. Very last question before we turn to talking about you a little bit. Anything from the acquisition in England and how they do this there, do they have a different attitude? Does it mean something different? And is that translatable here or vice versa? Yeah. The, the biggest discovery that I made uh, when I first started doing going out to the UK and, and doing diligence on the portfolio was, you know, they call them caravan parks. Right. I knew there was a different word. Yep. Yeah. And uh, I think most Americans equate a caravan to an RV. Mm-hmm. Okay. It makes perfect sense. And when I, when I arrived, I realized that they are not RVs in any way, shape or form. And if you've ever been to the UK, I don't know that I'd want to be driving an RV down some of those narrow roads, <laughs> a narrow, windy roads. And then the fact of the matter is, is people don't. Right. Okay. For the most part. And so these are static manufactured homes that are sitting in a community that is comprised primarily of second homeowners uh-huh. okay, as a vacation home. Um, in fact, in the UK, by law, you're required to own a home. In a, in a caravan park, you're required to own a primary residence. And they actually do check to make sure that that is actually the case. Hmm. The other big difference is with the homes themselves is, you know, we've all driven down the highways and we've seen homes being towed by a big truck to a property. That's not how it works in the UK. They actually, they are flat bedded in. There's maybe one set of wheels and axles that sit underneath that home, but that is only for positioning the home within the community itself. They are not designed to be trailered down a public road. Mm-hmm. Oh, so, frankly, it's stickier than even what we have mm-hmm. here in the United States. And so that was that was probably the biggest discovery in terms of how community functions. But you know, for us, I can't say enough about team at Park Holidays. You know, the other big thing that I saw when I went was how culturally we were well aligned mm-hmm. um, in the operational process and that long-term view, the continual improvements that are made into the properties. And so I'm a pretty monotone guy, but I'm beaming from ear to ear, Matt. And uh, it's really a thrilling endeavor for Sun and all of Sun's stakeholders. That's great. It's funny. As you say, you're a monotone guy. So let's talk about you for just, just a few minutes before we wrap up. And I'm thinking Midwest is coming out and monotone is your word, but it feels like I want people from the Midwest to own everything instead of people from New York owning everything. It has more of an operational uh, stewardship ownership versus this is an investment, cold hard fact. Now, I know it is at the same time. These coexist. But it's just an interesting thing of that cultural attitude that you've brought to the conversation. I think it's just it's just the way that you approach the business maybe is a right. little bit different. Maybe it's, 
maybe some of the steps and what you do are changed in order. The orders changed maybe and mm-hmm. things like that, you know, but I, I have an interesting role here at Sun. I mean, there are, there are times like a pandemic, okay, as an example, where things maybe throw everybody off a little bit. I mean, somebody here has got to be calm. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, uh, you know, even if, even if you're not, <laughs> exactly. So, yeah. you know, it's just, it's, it's what leaders do that speaks to culturally who we are. You know, we have, you know, our, our um, culture statements, um, which at the time at the beginning of the pandemic were called our core success attributes, which are commitment, intensity, empowerment, um, service, and accountability. The pandemic for Sun, I saw a thousand examples of people demonstrating those core success attributes at, at, at the hardest of times. And that told me everything. It was like, it was kind of cool because it was sort of that validation of everything that I believe, which I'd seen along the way because we talk about them a lot. But for it all to culminate, as terrible as the last two years have been for many, many people. Right. Okay. To see some of that, I'll call it grace merge through it, has been a very fulfilling thing for me. That's great. You know, it's interesting. It's in these challenging times that leadership at all levels comes into comes to the front. And for you yep. as a leader to go, okay, I'm going to be calm during this thing, which who knows what's going on. For me, it was actually my third or fourth crisis when COVID hit. And it was the first one of them where instead of freaking out, kind of more or less, I got really yep. calm and said, okay, we know what to do. We're just ready for you know, yeah. dealing with this thing. But then also that, that translates all the way down to your people and the level of empathy that they're dealing with for your residents, but that's built into your DNA as well. Yeah. And what a difference that makes. I mean, it's like, uh, to echo a little bit about what you're saying, I mean, you know, we deal, we deal with the occasional weather event from time to time. Okay? As you might imagine, we have a very refined emergency response plan. So when the pandemic hit, although there isn't any company that was prepared for a pandemic, mm-hmm. okay, we were more prepared just from a cultural perspective and the things that we had in place for dealing with emergencies in general. I think that the probably, I call it the single biggest accidentally brilliant thing we did was, you know, my, my core group got together in the very beginning and thinking about all the questions we need to answer, right? Mm-hmm. An unfamiliar situation. We actually opened it up to the entire company and within a couple hours had a thousand questions. Right. The fridge. Yeah. Yeah. And it was, you know, you don't use this word all the time, but it was awesome. Okay. What came in because we could have never gotten our plan in place and the execution underway quicker without the just the broadest collaboration we've ever had as an organization with people looking at what was happening from all different perspectives and to be able to go through and say, and tick off all those different questions in very rapid sequence, it was very powerful. I mean, it set things up for a much better path. Yeah. Well, it's also, it, it's interesting. So first of all, you know how to deal with crises. And, you know, gosh, you, you have communities in Florida where you're going to have hurricanes. So you have a res- emergency response capability within your company. Second yep. thing is you're going to admit that you just don't know what to do in a pandemic. So you have to get outside or internal people thinking about it. My father was a submarine captain, and he would always say growing up, he goes, you know, if you're in the middle of the North Atlantic 
and you've got a hundred foot swells pounding down on you, does it matter how you got there? <laughs> you know, I mean, what's the solution? Right. And, uh, and so that's, that's, what, that's what, but that's what we're focused on at every different level. Okay. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, but more importantly, one of the things that I always share with our team is a quote they've heard many times, which is execute and refine. Okay. <laughs> which is in the end, make decisions. Okay. They might not be perfect. Right. Okay. We can refine them, but if we're making decisions and we're moving forward, we're going to do very well. Let me ask a different kind of question. Um, this might be the first leading voices where I've talked to someone who has a COO title. You also have president title. Yep. And so much of what we've talked about is COO-ish conversation. Mm-hmm. And I'm a little bit curious about the difference for you and your wisdom that you could help with our audience to think about the word COO versus the word CEO and where those differentiate in terms of strategy versus operational stuff, maybe. But just talk a little bit about that because we've been very operational in the conversation, which I love yep. and respect. Yep. I think, I think the way I describe it for me is, um, you know, Gary has been, you know, our CEO here at Sun for over 28 years. Right. He is a visionary leader. He's, he's a gifted deal maker. Mm-hmm. You know, and so, you know, the combination of him and I, and, and it, I say this humbly, okay, because I really don't like talking about myself very much, but it's been a really great partnership because I would say he's, you know, he's definitely sort of the more visionary side of things and say, what if we tried this? What if we tried that? You know, that trickles down all the way through the organization where we've got a team full of people that can execute and that's where I sit. Mm -hmm. Okay. And operationally putting some of these visions into play. Mm -hmm. Okay. Getting from A to Z very quickly. Um, But, you know, so I, I, I describe him as really the, the visionary for the company where I am the operator of the company with some vision to go with it too. Okay. Mm-hmm. And, but, but we've been working this partnership now for 20 years. And then, so it's like, it's almost like you can sit in a room and look at each other and know what you're thinking. Of course. Okay? Of course. And, and how that all kind of connects and comes together in terms of a successful strategy. Yeah. My, my metaphor for this is the yin and yang and you got to have one of each. And yeah. then when they complement each other as well and you finish each other's sentences, you're going to yeah. have a company that works. Yeah. And so it um, makes it very thrilling. Congratulations on that. We've talked about you through the conversation, so we may miss that part of the conversation where I formally ask you about your whole background. But is there yep. any antecedents in your background that you want to talk about that helps us understand how you got here? Real estate was not my intended path. sort of got into an accident. I actually started out as a residential realtor um, and then went from there into the financial side of the business for seven years. Of this business? Yeah. Um, I was with a company called Green Tree, which became Conseco. Uh-huh. And, uh, spent five years on really, we'll call it the back-end operations. So it was more the uh, the collection side of the business and you know, selling foreclosures and things like that. And so it was a great way to cut your teeth. It was interesting, um, as you might imagine. Was that during the SNL crisis? What were the years? Were you were there a lot of foreclosures then in this asset type? Yeah, uh, towards the end, yes. And uh, but this is this was between ninety five and two thousand. Uh-huh. And then in, in two thousand, I, I Conseco had created a Six Sigma program, which was still kind of a new thing. I mean, GE was very much into Six Sigma. Right. Conseco's CEO 
was Gary Went, who came from mm-hmm. GE Capital, and uh, he brought Six Sigma with him. And so I applied and was accepted to be a black belt. That's what they yep. called us um, in Six Sigma. So that was that was sort of a bit of an epiphany moment for me, where it was really up until that point, I was really sort of isolated to the regions where we were in. Right. To understand how the business you know, fully operated until I got in Six Sigma and started having some projects. And that kind of opened my eyes. And so from there, I left the company in 2002 and joined Sun. I had a small portfolio as a regional. I've had two positions over the course of my career here that didn't exist until I created them and pitched them. And it made sense. I mean, and we ask, I ask people today, if there's a need, you see, you know, a business case for something, it could become something very big, okay, for the organization. So in my case, home leasing was that um, initially. And then really the sales side was the second one before I became chief operating officer. That's great. Um, Last question on leading voices is always the same, which is what's your advice for a young person getting into their career in real estate? I think I would equate it to what I've heard. I have a daughter who just graduated from college and you know, it's always makes me chuckle when I hear her or friends, you know, it's great that they've gotten new positions. They're just getting out of college, they're getting their first jobs and they describe them as their dream job. Mm-hmm. And uh, the fact is, is they don't know that yet. They don't know anything yet. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's, it's sort of like, I guess if I were to give advice, it would be, be flexible. Okay. Cause you know, it's important to, it's important to have a have a path and have a direction and to chart that path. It's important to meander around that path, okay? Because you'll see more along the way. Um, you never know what's really going to invigorate you in a direction that you want to go, um, which has happened over the course of my life. Like I shared with you, I think that you know some of what's taken place in the early part of my career was not a direction I'd set out on, um, but I'm grateful for what's what's taken place. It's been, you know, a challenging, rewarding uh, career thus far. And uh, I would say for me, it's a privilege to be a part of a really addressing the affordable housing crisis across America. It is definitely a privilege to be part of that. And I hope that we are more part of that. And so I always tell the team, and this is one of the other things I tell somebody starting their career, you know, anything imagined is possible. Don't ever lose sight of that because that is the truth. It is. It's interesting. I think of that meandering path all the time and I give advice. I wrote an article on the subject once even, and it was just, you don't know what's going to happen. You don't know the place you're going to stick. You don't know the people are going to stick with you. You don't yeah. know the relationship that's going to pay off and become a meaningful relationship. You don't know who you're going to marry, right? They're all the same. And when you're open to those changes, and sometimes it takes a while, and we talked about the you know opening of this for me, it took till I was age 40 to find myself in my role in real estate. And right. if you believe that that might actually be a truism, which it isn't, <laughs> I was a late bloomer that way. But if you believe that, it takes a lot of pressure off to just explore and figure out what's right for you. Yep, for sure. It is definitely, you know, an honor and a privilege to be in this position, and it's to be able to lead a team as large as Sun, not everybody has that opportunity. Yeah. Well, congratulations and thank you. This has been a wonderful conversation. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. Thank you. You too, Matt. Thank you for listening into Leading Voices, and I hope that you enjoyed today's episode. I have a request. If you enjoyed the episode and found it to be valuable, please share it with a friend or two. If they're podcast wary, 
Take their smartphone in your hand and subscribe for them and teach them to listen. You'll change their life. Seriously, thanks for listening and keep in touch. You know you can reach me at matt at terrasearchpartners.com. See you next time.